Good morning, everyone. Good morning. We've got to do it. How feels everyone? How is everyone? And thank you all for joining us from all over the country and around the world. So we want to just give you a little overview. You've all had the schedule, but we'll just explain it a little bit further. Um, we'll, the theme of the week is Master's Path to Self-Realization, Finding Inner Joy. And each day we're going to talk about different aspects of Master's Path. Today we'll give the overview, and that's uh, the mission of the Masters and why Master Yoganandaji came to America. And then, then we'll begin talking about different paths. Tomorrow we'll talk about the social path to self-realization. And this will be relationships and communities. And uh, talking about what we've learned in building community. Wednesday's class will be the active path to self-realization. What is service? What is seva? And then Thursday, you know, we have the long meditation, and then we have a ceremony for the, those taking different vows in the Nayaswami order. But then Friday, we'll have the concluding class, and this is the inward path to self-realization, the meditative arts, and Kriya Yoga. So I think this will be a very wonderful way to, this is actually the first major event. We had Master's birthday, but this is the first real focused classes on in this year of 2020, which is Master's 100th anniversary of beginning his mission in the West. And <clears throat> I also want to add that when we looked at the schedule, we realized we didn't really leave time for questions and answers, which is always fun to have. So this, today, this morning, we won't have them. But starting tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, the last 10 or 15 minutes, we'll have questions. And it's a little bit easier if you write them down. Uh, you can do it after today's class. There'll be a basket on the desk in the entryway, and you can put your questions in there, and then we'll answer them the next day. So, um, and there'll also be time for questions just from the floor, so to speak. But um, uh, it's a little easier. Sometimes people are shy to ask questions, so if you write them down, it breaks the ice. So, without much further ado. <laughs> Teach all men how to spin clouds of gloom into 
This is nice. You know, a little bit of history with this week. 
It started out many years ago after we realized that Spiritual Renewal Week had many guests and the energy was primarily going out to those guests. And we thought we ought to have a week that's more for us, the members of Ananda, the members of the community. And so we had a week kind of the opposite of the summer. We had a week during the winter and we called it Winter Renewal Week. And then one year it snowed every day and by the end of the week it was about three feet of snow on the ground. So we changed the name to Inner Renewal Week. <laughs> but the essence of it is that this is really meant for us as devotees and Davy and I are able to talk much more deeply and much more directly when we're addressing an audience that we don't have to explain who Paramahansa Yogananda was. We don't have to dance around the word God as if it's going to offend somebody. And so this week is for all of us. And as Davy said, because this more or less kicks off Ananda's work with the 100th anniversary of Master, we thought to focus this week especially, as we will also uh, spiritually know week, to focus it on Master, his life, and his path. So today we're going to talk about the lineage and why Master came to the West when he did. And so the lineage that we have, Swami explained to us, it's really very, very interesting because the same lineage keeps reincarnating over and over again at times of great world change that's going to be happening. So the same lineage incarnated at the time of the Bhagavad Gita. And so Babaji at that time was Krishna. Master was Arjuna at that time. Why at that time? Because uh, as Sri Yukteswar talked about the yugas, there's a descending cycle of 12,000 years containing four yugas, Satya, Treta, Dwapara, and Kali. And then an ascending cycle, Kali, Dwapara, Treta, and Satya. And that takes 24,000 years for that great, one might say, revolution or resolution, the great season as it's sometimes called. Well, at the time of the Gita, the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, the time of Krishna and Arjuna and the other masters, that was the change of ages in descending uh, cycle from Dwapara Yuga to Kali Yuga. And then uh, at least another time that we know of is that Master and Sri Yukteswar, we don't know about Lahiri and uh, Babaji, but Master and Sri Yukteswar also reincarnated at the time of England uh, during uh, the William the Conqueror was Master and Sri Yukteswar was his great teacher, Lanfranc. And Lanfranc, uh, in, in this life, Sri Yukteswar basically didn't have much of a public role. He had an ashram, and you hear a little bit about it, but 
um, other than the training of master and preparing him for his mission to the West, he didn't have a big role. Whereas Lahiri had a very important role. He was the instigator to bring Kriya and to the, to the whole of the world. He was also, um, one might say, the catalyst to bring the understanding that spirituality in this age can't be hidden, can't be uh, kept quiet up in the caves or in the monasteries. In fact, in the autobiography, it talks about how Kriya Yoga was known but hidden because of priestly secrecy and man's indifference. And so the science of Kriya Yoga was hidden during most or all of Kali Yuga. Now the time came to reintroduce that and Lahiri was the instrument. So the reintroduction of Kriya Yoga in, in his journals, he said specifically that he came in order to do that, to introduce Kriya because he knew that we were entering into a restless age, a very, very busy age when people did not have time for long periods of sadhana, many, many hours a day, as you might have in a, as a monk during Kali Yuga or as a um, Himalayan yogi in a cave where you basically had no other activity except your spiritual life. In this age, we needed something that was more efficient. So Master called it the jet airplane path. And so Kriya Yoga allows us to make that progress, but much more efficiently. But interestingly, in his past life, during the time of William, I mentioned that he was Lanfranc. Lanfranc was the advisor to William, the spiritual advisor, and, and his most trusted, I don't know, person. But he was also very interestingly, he basically trained all of the bishops and cardinals and popes of that age. He was the teacher of Christianity during that age. Isn't that interesting? Now he came as the teacher of master and sent him off to do the mission. So then, of course, master is, is the, the fourth part of this grouping, plus Christ, because Christ as we know from Swami's teachings and from what Master said, Christ appeared to Babaji in the Himalayas and asked that this teaching be sent because the age had come. Christ and Babaji are responsible for the spiritual upliftment, the spiritual welfare of the whole planet. And the time had come for in that spiritual welfare for uh, and I'll talk about this much more, but emerging of East and West, but specifically the bringing of the techniques of inner communion to the West, which was primarily Master's mission. And so during this, these five great Masters um, are really responsible for the spiritual evolution of the world. We're tied into a good line with this lineage. So with that kind of introduction, so then Master 
has his training. First of all, he has parents that are deep disciples of, of Lahiri Mahashaya. He has miraculous healings. Lahiri uh, tells his mother that he's going to be a yogi, he's going to be a train that will bring many, many souls to God. And so there's that spiritual background to it. But we, we might have the mistaken idea that Master kind of, well, he, he didn't really develop his full spirituality until he came to the West and had his mission. His full spirituality was there. His mission started when he came to the West, but we shouldn't confuse those two. We were told by, we were at Tulsi Bolsa's house, which, which Ananda now uh, is, is uh, caretaking as the owner of in Calcutta. And Master, when he was a, a teenager, he spent more time there than he did at his own house. His own house had lots of brothers and sisters and commotion, and he didn't like that too much. So he, he preferred to spend time at Tol his friend Tulsi's house, and, uh, and they were there. But um, the grandson uh, told us that basically Master and Tulsi were deep, deep souls. They would go in a little bedroom together or a little room. They would close the door and along with Master's Sanskrit teacher, they would go in, they would go into Samadhi. This is when he was 13, 14, 15, go into Samadhi and they would levitate. And uh, Tulsi would be posted at the door so nobody could get in to bother this, this thing happening, you know? So Master, came fully, fully developed spiritually. But his mission started when God called him to the West. And you've probably heard this story, but he, was, he had a, a school, he was the principal. Imagine this, just think of this in your own life. You're the principal of a school with 3,000 students. You're the prime energy, you're what's keeping it together. You can't get away from the kids. They keep wanting to draw on your energy. So you go into a little storeroom. You begin meditating. You have a vision there in which you see faces of people. And you know that these are souls calling you, potential saints calling you to come to America. And so, what is your process to write down the pros and the cons of all of this and make a carefully considered decision? Master left that afternoon, just left. Turned over his duties, went, and within a very short period of time, the arrangements were there for him to come to America to start his mission. When he came, his father begged him not to stay in America. And he said, I won't, Father. I'll come back to India unless the Americans need me. Isn't that something? So obviously we did. 
he found great, great need and very quickly. So he had two parts to his mission primarily. One was the mission for uplifting mass consciousness. And the other part of his mission was more particularly to all of the people sitting in this room and people like us who were people who wanted to really not only hear his teachings, not hear him lecture and be kind of bedazzled by it and then leave, but who actually wanted to, to dedicate their lives to practicing his teachings. Master one time in uh, Minneapolis, there were 5,000 people who were there in the audience and heard his lecture. And someone afterwards said, oh, Master, it's so wonderful. We have all of these people. And Master said, we'll be fortunate if five of them really take up these teachings. So that mass mission that he had was to get these principles out. And one might say, to start a catalyst in the mindscape of America. And now you look, so in 1920, here we are 100 years later. In 1920, probably everybody in America who meditated could fit inside this room. Now, 100 years later, the last figure that I heard, and this was some months ago, is that 24 million Americans have a daily practice of meditation. So imagine the change in that time. So that was what Master was doing. He was working as a catalyst to uplift the human consciousness at the time that it needed to be uplifted. So, and then the other part of it, which I'll talk about in a little while, is his mission to those of us, like us who have really taken up his teachings. So let me talk first about the elements of his mission to the world. So he himself wrote down his aims and ideals of what he did, what the reason, what he was trying to accomplish. And that included this mass consciousness aspect. So the first thing was that he was bringing the sense that you could relate personally to God. That uh, one of his statements was the time for knowing God has come. Dwapara Yuga is the time for knowing God. Now that sounds, well, of course that's obvious. But if you look at the trend of the world, which is what he and Babaji and Lahiri and Sri Yukteswar were looking at, if you look at the trend of the world, you'll see that that's not so obvious because the belief in God that had been kind of just an outward belief during Kali Yuga, in Dwapara Yuga, at least in this part of Dwapara Yuga, certainly as a percentage of the population, in the West, that belief in God is decreasing. At this time in Europe, there are more, more than 50% of the people say that they're either atheists or don't believe in the existence of a God. And the 
sense of traditional religion in America is also decreasing. So Master came, first of all, to say that there is a God. And not just there is a God and I believe in him and you should believe in him. No, something very, very different. He said, there is a God and I have experienced the consciousness of unity with that God. That's very, very different from kind of a philosophical or belief-based system. So there is a God and I have experienced unity with that God. And moreover, you can also experience unity with God. And furthermore, there are scientific specific techniques that will allow you to do that. Now that is a huge change from the Kali Yuga types of belief systems that, that you had where, where you were just told what to do and God was very, very separate from you. And uh, you know, it was a, I don't know, a peasant in some muddy village in Normandy. Uh, you didn't have very much of the thought that you were God in a disguised form and all you needed to do was remove your disguise and you would realize who you are. And Kali Yuga didn't have that concept, but now in Dwapara Yuga, so Master says there is a God. I experienced unity with God because I am an extension of God. You are an extension of God. You can experience unity with God. And here are the techniques by which you can do that. So that is the first and most important part of his mission to the world, because that is going to play out now over the next 2,000 years. We're just barely into Dwapara Yuga, less than 400 years in. So the Dwapara Yuga is 2,400 years. So that understanding of that and the specific scientific techniques have to do with control of energy and ultimately Kriya, which, as I mentioned, Lahiri brought that uh, technique specifically for this age because it is the right technique for this age. When Ananda was first starting, there were probably, uh, 50 years ago, there were probably a tenth, a hundredth as many people practicing Kriya in the world as there are now. And so that, that practice of Kriya is ascending. And a, a saint in India told one of our members that within in about 50 more years or 40 more years, it will be understood that Kriya will be the technique of world, uh, that everybody in the world knows and, and if not practices, at least knows of it, just as everybody knows about prayer. Now, it'll be these scientific techniques. So that's one aspect. Another aspect that Master brought is that, I wanna make sure. Okay, a second aspect is that the teachings of these great masters have practical application in daily life. That was another thing that Lahiri was the catalyst for. Remember, 
He wanted to stay with Master in the Himalayas, or with Babaji in the Himalayas. Babaji said, no, you have to go back. And uh, there was a reason that you came here with worldly responsibilities and a family. Go back and bring spirituality into daily life. That too is a change from Kali Yuga where you had to remove yourself from daily life if you wanted a sincere spiritual life. Now we don't, we don't need to nor should we seek to remove ourselves from daily life. We need to infuse daily life with spirituality. Another thing that Master brought was to bring one aspect of Dwapara Yuga is that borders between things begin to break down. As I've described it, if you have a pan of ice, ice is there because the temperature is low, meaning the energy is low. Then you can take that pan of ice and you can cut it up into cubes and you can separate it into different nations and different religions and different beliefs and all of those stay separate. But when that temperature rises, that water begins to melt. And it's very much harder to take a knife and cut a pan of water into chunks and expect it to stay that way. So Master is saying to us those separations that existed in Kali Yuga no longer apply in Dwapara Yuga. Specifically, the separations between different religions don't apply. Yes, it's fine to have certain rituals and certain beliefs, but the essence of religions are the same. And he said, I'll take the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita as examples of that, and I will explain those two scriptures so that you can see that underlying the unity is there between original Christianity and original, uh, one might say Hinduism, but the, but, but the teachings of Krishna, teachings of Krishna and Christ are basically the same, just stated differently. So religions, he said there should be a fusion of East and West. And so we're seeing that played out. See, Ananda is on the leading edge of this. I honestly believe that we're Treta Yuga um, consciousness beings playing a part in Dwapara Yuga as opposed to Kali Yuga consciousness being in, in Dwapara Yuga. But scratch, we won't go into that. <laughs> Nonetheless, we're playing a part in this of the fusion of East and West, the fusion of different nations. Davy and I were giving a satsang in uh, Italy a few years ago and it was during the time when there was a lot of talk about the European Union and the difficulties of it, which is always there. Um, it's politics, you know, um, always focused on problems. So at any rate, the uh, uh, news was about the European Union. And I said in the satsang, don't expect the politicians to create European Union. Don't expect the economists to create a European Union. A European Union is demonstrated by the people in this room. There were people from 12 or 14 different countries all living together, working together, eating together, talking together, 
sometimes haltingly because of the translation, but nonetheless, see those differences and those, those separations are all disappearing and Master was bringing that along. He also said that there should be a unity between science and religion. They should not be seen as different uh, antagonistic ways of thinking, that they're both seeking truth but in a different way. And he talked about in meditation, the laboratory of meditation is our own consciousness and it should be done scientifically. And so he brought, talked about the fusion between these. He talked about how spirituality is meant to help us. It isn't something up on a bookshelf. That spirituality, properly done, should help us on physical mental, emotional, and spiritual levels. And that it should be practical and uplifting on all of those levels. And that he, he talked about the body, mind, and soul all working together. Now, a hundred years later, you know, scientists are at least talking about the body-mind connection. They're not quite ready to, to take the next step and add soul into that equation. It'll come, it'll come but that all of that's coming. Moreover, he also said, talked about the superiority of the mind over the body in order to produce healing. That's coming along too. And the superiority of the soul over the mind to produce welfare in our, in our being. And so, but the point here is that these teachings are meant not to I don't know, not to be a burden, not to be something that is um, kind of woolly-headed and, and philosophically nice, but you don't have to pay attention. These are practical, daily, applicable things that will make your life better than it would be. Everybody sitting in this room who has been a part of Ananda for any time or watching online, absolutely knows to their cellular being that their life is better because of these teachings than it would be without these teachings. And we'll talk about different aspects during the week. And then finally, he talked about world brotherhood and that, that these teachings ought to reach out and lift the consciousness and create a sense of world brotherhood. And furthermore, there should be communities, world brotherhood communities, where these teachings can be lived and demonstrated and have a living laboratory. So all of that is his work with mass consciousness. And when he went out and gave his talks, he was not afraid of having exciting titles or of going big. I just pulled off from the internet. Um, this is just this week, within this week. Some of the titles, we have the A Day in the Life of Paramahansa Yogananda. So it would say, you know, what was he doing on February 3rd? Um, and then it would list different years. So these are a few of his talks that were just on um, what is human life for? Oh, okay. Super science and art of concentration for real success. 
Art of Attracting Prosperity According to Superconscious Law, and How to Smile at All Times. <laughs> Those are just a few from, I mean, he gave hundreds of talks that way. And so we know of his talks, we know of the fact that thousands came to hear him in the big auditoriums. But what's really much more important is that he would go to these different cities, St. Louis and Minneapolis and Portland, and Seattle and Los Angeles and Miami and all over every major city that he could go to. And he would be there for six weeks at a time, giving daily classes, sometimes two or three classes a day, and, and bringing people up and initiating them into Kriya Yoga. And so at a certain point, his work turned more toward um, uh, the serious devotees. And that's when he wrote his great books, the autobiography, which is like, a, I don't know, a, a, has magnetized a whole generation of people. And the Bhagavad Gita, which he said is going to bring millions of people to God. And I'll just end by saying, this is all interesting. But what does it mean for you and for me and those of us who are sitting here, those of us who are really trying to live these teachings? First of all, it means that the way to our liberation, our self-realization is through attunement with master and his consciousness and his teachings by living those by practicing those, by being an extension. Master is the power behind everything. And our fastest pathway is to get completely in tune with him. That means to practice the teachings that he brought, including all of the techniques and Kriya Yoga. But more than that, it means to take on, were his hands and his feet and his tongue and his mind, at least in the terms of manifested individuals, he's on an astral plane right now. And so if he wants to project into the world on a physical plane, he has to do it through instruments. And you and I have the great, great blessing and for us the responsibility of being those instruments. And so each of us should find something that we can deeply dedicate ourselves to. You know, Master, when he gave his talk at that big garden party in Hollywood, Swami said it was the most powerful talk he ever heard. And he talked about the absolute necessity of creating these world brotherhood communities. And Swami said he was the only one in the whole audience of six or 700 people who heard that message in such a way that he was willing to do something about it. So Master is talking to each one of us in some way. For Swami, it was World Brotherhood communities. It was spiritual communities, writing, lecturing, and editing, Master also said. Swami dedicated his life to that. You and I need to listen 
because master can't talk to us physically anymore. We need to listen sensitively and very openly and ask master, what is it that you want me to do in this lifetime? And if we hear a calling, and if we do that calling, that will be our path to self-realization. And that's why Master came for you and me. He came for the world for another reason, but for you and me, he came to bring us to self-realization. Good morning again. It's very, very nice to be with all of you here during this week. So I'd like to start by doing a little um, research and look at what was going on historically, politically, scientifically at the beginning of the 20th century, say 1900 to 1950, when the whole thrust of Master's mission was being launched. So let's just look at what was going on first historically. Well, we know about in the First World War was 1914, terrible. The world had never seen death and devastation and destruction in that way. And it ended in 1919. And that was the close of the war. And at that time, what we see in these, what we're going to be describing in this historical and scientific journey is the play of light and darkness because that's one of the hallmarks of Dwapara Yuga, contrast. It's not, when I first read about the Yugas, I thought, oh, wonderful, we're in Dwapara Yuga now. But the more I read about it, the more I thought, oh, this is not a good thing. <laughs> because it's that tension between light and darkness, and that's what we see. So the terrible destruction of the First World War, 1919, the League of Nations met for the first time, trying to find a way to avoid this kind of violence and uh, animosity and hostility, one nation against the other. But what else happened in 1919? End of the war, League of Nations. Treaty of Versailles, a terrible document because it sowed the seeds for the Second World War. It tried to totally suppress and destroy Germany, which is a proud, uh, dynamic nation. And it was from the seeds of what came out of the Treaty of Versailles that Hitler was able to rise in that kind of nationalism, violent nationalism. So all these things were happening. Uh, 1929, great stock market crash and the beginning of the global depression. Years of suffering, darkness, but at the same time, there was the efforts, the uh, projects that were started by the government to help people return a sense of self-worth and uh, to begin putting, realize that it isn't just about money, it's about the consciousness of a, of a nation embracing its citizens. Then during the 30s, uh, uh, it was a difficult time financially. Master was here. We'll trace his history in a bit. 
But then it began the rise of nationalism in Germany and the building up of armaments. All the other nations ignored it. All the allies of World War II, they could not conceive there could be another war. So they just ignored the fact that all these armaments were being amassed and troops were being assembled. And then in 1939, Germany invaded Poland. And it was the beginning of the Second World War. And of course, again, un, if World War I was bad, World War II was worse. And we have 1941, Pearl Harbor, which engaged the United States in the war. Good and bad, light and darkness, always playing off against each other. 1945, as we know, dropping of the first atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Untold devastation. But from that, from looking at what had happened in the first half of that century, people began to want a different way of life. And parenthetically, what happened in 1946? Autobiography of the Yogi is published. Light and darkness, always playing against each other. 1950, by the way, right before Master's passing, the Korean War. And Master, <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little bit of a cold, but it's not bad. Master spoke very strongly against communism because it was atheistic, because it, it took God out of the equation. You know, we were uh, doing some talks in Russia some years ago, and this was maybe 10 years ago. And um, the, the people there, the devotees, were taking us from, showing us all these beautiful old Eastern Orthodox churches, just beautiful. And I just asked our friend who was showing us around, the Russian people have such a deep love for God. How could you accept communism that denies the existence of God? And he simply said, we were misled. That was all he said. But so that was what we're looking at historically. What was going on scientifically during this period? Because it, you have to, it, it's, as I began looking at this, it was like pieces of a puzzle that all fit together. Okay, start at the beginning of 19, 1905, Albert Einstein theory of relativity, that energy and matter are essentially the same thing. This is the right beginning of Dwapara. And actually predating that in the late 1800s and early 1900s, Tesla, Nikolai Tesla and Edison began working with energy. And, and Tesla was an incredible soul. I mean, he was trying to draw energy and make it free for everyone. but due to funding for Edison, his discoveries were suppressed. And that's the truth. So all these things were happening scientifically. And then it starts getting really interesting, where these brilliant scientists, all these things happen in the first 30 years of the 20th century. Hubble discovers, you know what? The Milky Way isn't the only galaxy. We're just part of a vast universe. And other scientists began, so that's vast and big. And someone came up with the Big Bang Theory of how the universe was created. Big, big vision. But at the same time, quantum mechanics was being uh, looked at, where they began saying, oh my gosh, there are subatomic particles. 
and atomic, but even subatomic. And they're still discovering literal, smaller and smaller particles. And so at this time, even though the background of humanity was killing each other and gassing each other and betraying each other, the scientists were starting to say, you know, this world is a unified whole. And it sprang from energy. And, and when you read some of the treatises of Einstein, as Master says in autobiography, they're just parallel, reflecting the deepest teachings of the Vedas, that it's all one consciousness and it unites everything. And so these things were going on in the background, but at the same time, light and dark, nuclear fission, we can split the atom and it releases a whole bunch of energy. And we can do good things with this, but we can also create bombs with nuclear fission. And they could blow up a whole city. They could destroy a whole country, light and darkness. So this was the background of what was going on, why the, the masters, and now we'll talk about this, what was the parallel track going on with our line of gurus and the great Himalayan masters looking at all this. How can we help? These naughty children are going to destroy each other otherwise. And so 1893, just about the time Tesla and Edison were battling it out about different kind of currents of electricity, in Barali, India, a little boy was born, Lukundalal Ghosh. His parents were devotees. And as we mentioned, his mother took him to Lahiri Mahashaya, her guru, and he said, your son will be a great spiritual engine. He will bring many souls to God's kingdom. And one year later, 1894, and remember, this is barely 30 years after the end of the Civil War in America. I mean, slavery, all freedom, human dignity and freedom. 1894, a very centered, very detached, very deep soul, who we know as Sri Yukteswar, decided to go at his guru's uh, encouragement to the Kumbh Mela in Allahabad. And he wasn't that impressed with what he saw. He saw a lot of beggars, a lot of superficial devotion, and he was thinking, Surely, the men and women of science in the West who are striving to uplift humanity and improve human life, certainly these are more pleasing to God than all these beggars. And just then, as he was having this judgmental thought, someone tapped him on the shoulder. He said, come, a saint wants to see you. And he said, who is he? Come and see. And so he did. And this is what, of course, the saint we know was Babaji. And I, I can't, I, we have to read this because I paraphrasing it is uh, doing it an injustice. So Babaji says to Sri Teshwar, after he initiates him in the Swami order by calling him Swami. <laughs> I saw, Babaji says, I saw that you are interested in the West as well as the East. Babaji's face beamed with approval. I felt the pangs of your heart broad enough for all men, whether oriental or occidental. That is why I summoned you here. 
East and West must establish a golden middle path of activity and spirituality combined. India has much to learn from the West in material development. In return, India can teach the universal methods by which the West will be able to base its religious beliefs on the unshakable foundation of yogic science. You, Swamiji, have a part to play in the coming harmonious exchange between Orient and Occident. Now this is 1915 when Master, when Sri Teshwar recounts this story to Master. It happened in 19, uh, 1894, but he doesn't tell him about it till 1915. And he said, some years hence, I will send you a disciple whom you can train for yoga dissemination in the West. The vibrations there of many spiritually seeking souls, Babaji says, come flood-like to me. I perceive potential saints in America and Europe waiting to be awakened. At this point in his story, Sri Teshwar turned his gaze fully on mine. My son, he said, smiling in the moonlight, you are the disciple that years ago Babaji promised to send me. So <clears throat> then continuing the story of what was, what's going on, 1920, Master comes to these shores and he begins his mission against the backdrop of everything we've been talking about. Truly amazing, really. And Babaji also says, we read in autobiography, and this is, these are two points that struck me with a kind of a stunning uh, new insight as I read them, that it says Christ and Babaji have worked out the spiritual technique for the salvation of this age. It isn't just that they're bringing, they're the saviors of this age. They have worked out the technique for the salvation of that age, of this age. And of course, that technique, they didn't discover it. It's the ancient technique of Kriya Yoga. But they realize that now that we are in Dwapara Yuga, this is the technique that will work for people in this age who are seeking God. And so that's one thing that they, they brought. It wasn't just a wave of grace. It was something practical that we could do. They saw that was needed. And then again and again, they repeat. Babaji says it, and Master says it later, for harmonizing the nations. The technique for harmonizing the nations. That was the need of humanity at this period of Dwapara Yuga. So it isn't just, oh, we'll all go and find God. That's not where humanity was at. We weren't, one, ready for that. But moreover, the predominant currents were of self-destruction and war. And so let's give them a technique that will help them realize their universal unity with all humanity to harmonize the nations and get us out of the cycle of World War I, World War II, dot, dot, dot. And so very interesting how they worked 
and why they did it in this way. And then <clears throat> on the eve, 1920, on the eve of Master about to leave, first uh, he's praying in his hotel room in uh, Mumbai, Bombay at the time. And again, this is a fun little aside. One of our devotees in Mumbai found this hotel still exists where Master prayed and had the vision of Babaji. It's now an office building. And he, our devotee, our friend Ayush, um, he said he went to the specific office that, was, that occupies that floor and he said, well, you know, the great Babaji manifested right here in your office. <laughs> Can we have meditations here? And the people, of course, looked at him like he was crazy. But I, I think they said on off hours they could come. Was that what once a year. Yeah, once a year they can go into that office. So here's Master meditating and praying till he thought his brain would burst. And there's Babaji. And he says, you are the one I have chosen years ago. Go now and bring the technique that will bring harmony to East and West. Because it's said that Babaji well understood the complexities of the materialistic consciousness of the West. And he knew the only way to change the course of human history was to introduce Kriya Yoga. He said, spread Kriya Yoga in all lands. And then the eve before he departed, he knelt at his guru's feet, who he wouldn't see for another 15 years, Sri Teshwar. And Sri Teshwar said, we quoted this, Saturday at the minister's retreat, but it's very significant again. Specific technique to harmonize the nations, but then the third leg of it, <clears throat> and all these apply to us, the third leg is, Sri Teshwar said, and this is a huge thing for an Indian, one Indian to say to another, he said, forget you were born a Hindu, but don't become an American. How do you do that? You know, work like lightning, but don't change your word. He said, incorporate, in, he said, be yourself. Very important. And that's also one of the keynotes of Master's whole path. Be yourself. You can't be anybody else. Be yourself, a child of God. And incorporate into your being the best qualities of your brothers and sisters around the world. And that's what Master did. And that's what we need to do as well. So this was the launch of that mission, to bring a technique, to harmonize the nations, and to create a model of a new global citizen that was neither East nor West. I mean, you look at the pictures of Master in the early years, and he still was more Indian, wasn't he? But then as time went by, he, he was neither. He, he did it. He incorporated the best of all beings into himself. And he could be with American Indians. He could be with a little Italian opera singer. He could be with the president of Mexico. He could, he, he, he could be with the president of the United States, Calvin Coolidge. And he was always, he reflected their consciousness, but at the same time, was himself. He was a child of God. And what a great blessing to have him as a model. 
So now then, how, Jyotish talked a lot about what Master did. I want to talk a little bit about how he did it. So let me flip over my notes so I don't forget anything. So drawing from different sources, when Master first arrived in Boston, yes, he spoke at the, con the Congress of Religious Liberals, and he lived in the YMCA and so forth and so on. Do you know the story that he had never been in a cafeteria before? And at the YMCA, he went in there, and he sat down, and he waited for the waiters to come and take his order, and no one came, and no one came, and everyone was around him was eating. I mean, think about it. You know, I, I, when we go to India, we're always baffled by social customs and invariably doing wrong things, but that's just the way it is. And, but he, finally, he realized, I don't think anyone's going to bring me food. And he watched what the other people were doing, and he got a tray, and he helped himself to food. He also, he talked about walking down the streets in Boston in his orange robes with his long hair. And some, he described them as little factory worker girls, ran up behind him and were laughing, and they were pulling his hair. And he turned around and said, I am a guest in your country. This is no way to treat a guest. He said, if you were in my country, people would think your dress and your manner of your hair was strange. And they, they, they got it. They were very, very sorry and apologized. But he, so he landed in America. He had, and he said he spent the first few years, yes, he lectured, but mainly his focus was learning to understand American ways and perfecting the English language, or at least becoming fluent in the English language. So this is what he did at first. And then with that ability to speak the language and to understand Americans more, he began lecturing. And Jyotish described some of the talks. He didn't hold any punches. You know, <clears throat> we were giving a lecture some, I don't know, I, I kind of lose track of time, but some time ago, we were giving a lecture in uh, Singapore. And we had advertised. And some man came up to us afterwards, and I could tell there's going to be a problem. But because um, he, he just had a, you can always sort of tell. And he, we can't always, but this one was obvious. And so he said to me, this was a nice talk, but I don't really like the fact that you all were advertising your talk. Yogananda never advertised his talks. And, and I, I was polite, <laughs> but I just want to say, have you ever seen the posters? <laughs> Have you seen the names of the talks he gave? Yogananda said, we use business methods for religion to spread it. And so he wasn't afraid. So he began lecturing. And he said, in his own words, that at first some people were disappointed because his talks were so practical and down to earth. But he knew what he was doing. He said, okay, you, they said, we want more Indian philosophy. So he gave, he said, okay, let's see how you like this. So he gave a talk all about the subtleties of, of Vedantic philosophy. He said, everyone fell asleep. <laughs> so he knew that's how he did it. And he had to adapt, had to adapt, not change at all, but adapt the teachings that were resonant in his being so that the Americans could understand them. And then 
Fast forwarding a bit, 1935, when he went back to see his guru for the last time, Sri Yukteswar said to him, a little bit, um, a little bit critical, I suppose, or challenging, he said, are you changing the teachings? And Master said to him, no, sir, I'm not changing them, I'm adapting them. He's, and he said, for, and Sri Yukteswar wasn't convinced. And then Sri Yukteswar, uh, then Yoganandaji had a wonderful reply. He said, you are like Sri Yukteswarji Gurudeva. You are like the goldsmith. You work only with the pure ore. I am the jeweler. I fashion the gold so that people can wear it. And Sri Yukteswar laughed and he said, I accept that. And so that's what he did. And he, but more than just that, he had the courage and the strength and the honesty to speak to people as they needed it. And Americans aren't used to that so much. So we know the story from the wonderful play Jewel and the Lotus, where Master spoke out during the Depression, spoke out against the big um, business magnates who were exploiting the poor. And a gunman was sent to kill him after uh, one of his lectures. And Master wasn't afraid. The man came up to him with a gun and pointed it in his back. And he said, why did you speak that way about those people? And Master just turned to him and he said, God does not like when his rich children take advantage of his poor children. And he went on, then he looked at the man who was a hired gunman. And he said, why do you live the way you live? You're not happy. I demand that Satan come out of you. And the man started trembling and crying. And he said, I can't go back to that way of life anymore. And he threw the gun down and ran away. So Master had that courage to be outspoken. On another occasion, <clears throat> he was at a big high society party, and the hostess said, um, oh, please give an address. And he said, no, I, I don't think so. <laughs> and they kept insisting, insisting. And finally, he said, all right. And he began talking with for, you know, force and courage, because he only could speak the truth about how shallow their lives were and how empty their ambitions were. And he, people started crying. And many lives were changed that day. But he had to have that, that courage and that strength if he was going to be able to change people. And that's what he did. And so, and then finally, he again working to create a sense of world brotherhood, traveling to countries on his way back from India. You know, they say that he tried to get an appointment actually with Hitler. This was 1936, but he couldn't, they wouldn't um, allow him to see, it, it didn't work out. But then finally, how Master did it was through discipleship. You know, the autobiography of Yogi, if nothing else, it's a handbook on discipleship. He came to the West, certainly not because he wanted it, but he came because his guru told him and his paramparam guru, Babaji, told him to come to the West. And everything he did was an act of discipleship. And there's a beautiful quote that I just wanted to share. <clears throat> Master said, 
When I was in India, I knew I must, in 1935, 36, I knew I must return, but I felt such a strong affinity to stay here in this land where God exists in the very soil. Then I saw all of you, and especially those I am yet to meet. That's us. <laughs> you were my real family. You were my own. And this was my home, my family and God. This was a changed thought for me, because I always thought poor master was Tapasya. How could it be Tapasya if he was doing his guru's will? And that's all it was. I'm doing the will of my masters. And I, this, wherever they put me, is my family and God and is my home. And so how do we now follow in the footsteps of our guru? All these things we've talked about. Practicing the scientific technique that is the salvation of this age. Practicing Kriya Yoga not just for our own salvation, but for the salvation of this age. When you do it, don't try to, and when you're concluding the technique, try to feel like the energy that you've awakened that's uplifted in your spine, expand it out. and Try to feel that it's uplifting the consciousness of humanity. Have the courage and the strength to do what you know is right, even if people mock you. Oh, what are you doing? That silly yoga stuff. Although that's not so prevalent now. Even if people don't understand, you have the courage and the strength. Master did. We can to do what you need is know is right, even if it means maybe disappointing other people or people don't understand. But have that courage and that strength to follow in Master's footsteps. He broke the ice for us. We can follow in those footsteps. In your discipleship, feel that everything that you're doing, if it's spiritual, quote, or just a regular job, everything you're doing is in service to the guru and is a reflection of your discipleship. This is the key to making our life have meaning and value. And adaptability. Don't just think this is how we've always done it. Even this is how Ananda's always done it. Think outside of the box. And we're so thrilled that many of the young people who are coming, I would say almost all, who are coming to live at the village do this. They respect what's gone before, but they're willing to think in new ways, to be innovative. We need this very much. If this work will continue in Masters, um, along his, in his footsteps. And <clears throat> then finally, to just be yourself a global citizen. Feel that every nation is yours. Every suffering, everyone you see suffering, that suffering is a part of you. There aren't this nation and that nation and the haves and the haves nots. That's what the politicians are telling us. We're all different. Protect your own. That's not what master came for, and it's not what he lived for, or any of our masters. They came to show us universal brotherhood, creating communities, creating centers wherever you are, to express this, this universal acceptance and respect. You know, Swami did this with his music. If he had, 
he, it's so beautiful how he, he touched the high consciousness of every, so many different nations, Hawaii and Japan and Mexico and Ireland and England and um, Spain and on and on, not to mention India. But he was trying to reflect in the music that same underlying melody, the melody of harmony and divine consciousness. And I'll just close now by <clears throat> reading a passage that very, this is of course the first edition of Autobiography of a Yogi. And I want you to close your eyes and feel like Master is saying these words to you. The prophet Isaiah said, You shall go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The men of a hard-pressed 20th century longingly hear that wondrous promise. Yet the full truth within it is realizable by every devotee of God who strives manfully to repossess his divine heritage. The blessed role of Kriya Yoga in East and West has hardly more than just begun. May all men come to know that there exists a definite scientific technique of self-realization for the overcoming of all human misery. In sending loving vibrations to the thousands of Kriya Yogis scattered like shining jewels over the earth, I often think gratefully, Lord, Thou hast given this monk a large family. Om Jai Guru. <clears throat> Thank you. And we'll take a little break now for five minutes or so if you need to stretch or something. And then we'll come back at noon and we'll have a half hour meditation. <laughs>